0: visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. David Thirtyacre, assistant professor in the College of Aeronautics at the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Uh, We discuss the evolving use and technology integrated on small UAS systems, uh, unmanned aerial systems. Before I get to my guests, uh, if you follow our show, especially the bonus episodes that we've been releasing every other week uh, that will eventually be pulled into our new subscription service here in in the near future, uh, you'll know that this is a pretty big week here in February 28th on Capitol Hill. You'll certainly want to grab your popcorn if you're into if you're into this sort of uh, thing. But uh, if if you tuned into our bonus episode last week, when I sat down with Colonel Jeff Fisher, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jeff Fisher, we talked a lot about the Ukraine War Aid Bill. Uh, that bill is coming back to Congress here on February twenty eighth. Uh, which we expect to pass with just enough drama to keep us all interested, but it's certainly an important vote here uh, that we'll be watching very closely. We also have the first of two continuing resolution deadlines on March 1st uh, to keep the federal government open and funded. Now, for those of you not familiar with our convoluted budgeting process, uh, these continuing resolutions were passed because Congress was unable to pass individual appropriations bills at the by the end of the fiscal year on September 30th, last year in 2023. Uh, so these CRs have been ongoing and extended. Uh, and in December, they decided to do another CR and break it up into two deadlines, uh, March 1st and then March 8th will be the deadline for the, for the eight other appropriations. And that's the big one because that has defense. And so we're once again on the cusp of will the government shut down or not? So I was just in meetings in D.C. last week. There's a lot of uncertainty, but an expectation that a shutdown will be avoided. The political will is not there to do that. But there's still a lot of uncertainty because it's there's just a, a lot of variables a, a, in play. So whether that progress comes here in the next week, comes in the form of another short-term CR, a long-term continuing resolution uh, to the end of the fiscal year or something, uh, an omnibus bill that p- pulls them all together into one package or individual bills that breaks them apart. And it'll probably be in that order. Uh, no one no one knows. Uh, but uh, to help us with the latest inside scoop, I'll be sitting down with DC consultants, Madison Archangeli and Katie Nazaritova next week for a bonus episode that will be released next Wednesday, March 6th. Uh, it'll be a great discussion to kind of dig into the, the uncertain landscape they're on Capitol Hill every day. They they are talking to all the people that are making decisions. And so they're able to share with us kind of what they're hearing. And it's probably the best way to really kind of get an unfiltered understanding of, of what's going to happen, both politically and in terms of policy. So if you're an AOC member, you'll get a chance to participate in the live recording of that episode, which takes place on Tuesday, March 5th. Uh, you can be a part of that. You can listen in. You can ask questions, comment. You can do so anonymously. Um, so if you're an AOC member, look to your email for more information. If you're not an AOC member, you can still listen to the episode when we release it on Wednesday next week. Okay, so with that, I welcome Dr. David Thirtyacre to From the Crow's Nest. As I said at the top of the show, David is assistant professor in the College of Aeronautics at the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Embry-Riddle is a global campus, and David is located up in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Uh, which unfortunately we did not know when we recorded our interview. So thank you, David, for getting up so early to be with us uh, before dawn. Uh, David is the chair and chief pilot for the Department of Flight and currently instructs at the undergraduate and graduate levels in flight operations, aerodynamics, aircraft performance, unmanned systems, airborne robotics, and aviation and aerospace simulation systems. Uh, He is retired from the U.S. Air Force with 27 years of duty in the fighter community, Uh, with over 3,500 hours piloting fighter aircraft, and he was a pioneer in the use of unmanned systems. So, David, welcome to From the Crossness. It's great to be
1: here with you. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it.
0: A few months ago, I had the honor and privilege of moderating an AOC webinar. You were the guest presenter on on this topic of small UAS systems, kind of where are we at today? Where is the technology taking us? It was a great presentation, so I wanted to have you on the show to have a little bit more of an informal conversation on the same topic. It's a, it's a topic that's gained a lot of attention here in the news. In our last episode of From the Crows Nest, we were talking about it in terms of how UAS, small UAS systems are being used in Ukraine, as well as you know every day we're hearing about how they are being used by Houthi rebels in Yemen in the Red Sea. So this is a technology that's out there proliferating, Evolving very fast. And I wanted to have you on to kind of help us break it down. What are we seeing? How are we competing? And where do we need to go for that? So, by way of introduction, thank you
1: for uh, agreeing to be on the show. Oh, i love to be here. I appreciate it, Ken.
0: So, just to begin, you know, the world is, we have a lot of conflicts going on around the world right now. Ukraine, as I mentioned, Yemen. Almost every day, small UAS systems are in the headlines in some way, being used for a number of different capabilities or roles. Could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing
1: today and how UAS systems are being used across the capability spectrum? Yeah, there's uh, obviously an awful lot going on in this area, you know, and when you when you look at the the combat side of it, you know, you have, you know, back in the, boy, the early days of uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom and, and all that, there was a lot of use of the IEDs and things like that. You know, that was kind of a new not a new technology, but it was something that is that can be used, be used by a not too technically savvy, I guess, is my point. Um, you know, group that can make a make you know that made massive uh, a massive damage on on our forces with a uh, IEDs and things like that. And you know, the the small UAS side is just kind of the next evolution of that. It's kind of the next piece of that. Um, and you know, you think about the ability to get these small aircraft that. You know, can carry a decent little warhead and be able to put that wherever you want. Um, you know, that's a that's a game changer. Um, and you know, frankly, it's that kind of asymmetrical type of warfare that, as a, uh, a you know, as a, as a military, you're always looking at. You know, trying to take advantage of it, but also trying to defend against it. So it's it's a really interesting area and. You know, over the last about 10 years is when this has really taken off. There's been some technological advances over the last 10 years with a lot of the miniaturization of things uh, with the battery power, with the brushless motors that are that are out there for all these. So there's all sorts of things that kind of came together to make all this possible. And, you know, it's really only been over the last 10 years that you've really been able to to put something together that, you know, anybody can get out of a box, uh, you know, from one of the, the big box stores and be able to go out and fly something right now. Back when uh, when I kind of got into this about eight years ago, we had a contract to teach a federal agency. And one of the things I wanted to show them was how absolutely easy it was to drop things off it. And at that time, I took a uh, like a little a bag of powder and I just showed, had a quick little uh, a demonstration on being able to drop that on a crowd of people. You know, those little things like that. And when you're trying to stop a technologically advanced force from coming in, having these asymmetrical capabilities, it's demoralizing um, it's fairly cheap it's fairly effective you know and the defenses for them are you know keeping pace but they're still not everywhere so anyway i guess the point here is that this is the you know kind of the standard progression of some new technology like this that's uh, that's coming out Um, and then when you couple that with the ability to fly an autonomous route so you know, the billet, maybe not a toss maybe the automatic route is a more realistic way to talk about that but being able to program an aircraft to fly to a certain position you know you, you look at 15 20 years ago the idea of of somebody being able to buy something like that you know from a store and just being able to go do that just it just wasn't a reality but now it is you can take an aircraft you can program it where to fly you can tell it what you want to do and with just a little bit of of programming knowledge you can go out there and you can do uh do all sorts of damage so anyway a long answer to your question there but you know the technology is there. Um, the products are out there now, and it's just a matter of these these things being used in in different roles now. Whether it's intelligence gathering, or whether it's uh, you know releasing some sort of ordinance on top of something you normally couldn't get to. You know you can't reach them with a regular fire, but now you can get to them with a uh, with a UAS or something. So this is yeah, this is the future. You know when you start coupling this with AI, it's it's where things are going.
0: Well, yeah, and. and- I want to dive into a little bit about the role of AI and how that's evolved as well. But, you know, kind of building on what you had said, you know, I think one of the alarming things is, and you made a good point about this, is the dual use technology aspect of a lot of these small UAS systems. Commercial uses, obviously you can, you know, on the commercial in the commercial sector, you can get them for a lot cheaper than you can. And then of course, our solution to a lot of these small UAS systems in combat. And you can hear about it. In in the red, you know, in our operations in the Red Sea, we're shooting down drones with, you know, missiles, and so the the cost uh, imbalance is is, is there. And so, could you talk a little bit about, from a commercial perspective, before we get into the military, how is the commercial sector influencing or driving the availability of these small UA systems for the dual use purpose in military operations by many of our adversaries?
1: Well, you know it's uh, uh, it's pretty interesting in this area because it's one of those that there's more the technology is available and things are built and programmed and everything prior to there maybe being even a use case for it. So it's one of those things where the capabilities are out there. you know when you look at when you look at the the evolution of these uh, of these uh, small UAS and and the capabilities that they have, there really wasn't a hey we're going to go build this to do x y or z it was hey we have the capability to do this let's let's make these little quadcopters and things like that so the technology was there, and it's looking for a use, and that's kind of still where we're at with a lot of this. These aircraft are made on the commercial sector. A lot of them are built for fun; they're just for recreation. Uh, but they have a lot of other different uh, different capabilities. And it, you know, it's kind of like the uh, the the computer hacker mindset, where you find a vulnerability and you find a capability, and you, you and you use that in order to exploit information. It's the same with this, and you know, it's. Uh, uh, What's happened with the manufacturers of this? So you look at at uh, you know a DJI product compared to products that say the US is putting out, and, and frankly, there's no comparison. You know, a good example of that is with the uh, the infrared uh, imaging capability. When you look at some of the aircraft, for example, we have a, a what's called a Matrice 300 that has a, a a very good it's a 620 infrared sensor on a thermal sensor on it, and the sensor is so good. That you can buy it from DJI, but because of ITAR, you couldn't sell it to anybody else. <laughs> you know, so it's one of those where that technology is just advancing and the capabilities of that IR camera, it was better than some of the uh, the equipment back in the military had 20, 25 years ago. This stuff is better than that. So you have the technology that's there and, it is, and it's just getting better and better and it's getting smaller and smaller and faster and faster. And that technology uh, on the commercial sector is, uh, you know, kind of looking for, again, looking for the jobs out there. Multispectral sensing is a great example of that. You have these great sensors, but it's like, OK, so how do we use this um, and and how do we use this in farming? We have these great capabilities, but what does it mean? So the technology is leading the use cases. Is it a
0: matter, the commercial sector, a greater leeway for experimentation, failure, risk than you might get in, in, a, in the U.S. government? per se, where you can have the hacker or the hobbyist or whoever just kind of toying around with it, seeing what it can do. And if it fails, it fails. If it succeeds, it succeeds. And is that kind of stimulating some of this or more so than you might see from other technologies?
1: Well, I think the 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 cost of failure for a lot of this, when you're thinking about applying it to something, the cost of failure is very low. When Ken you made the comment about the you know shooting down a a uh, ten thousand dollar drone with a uh, two million dollar missile type thing, the consequences of failure when you're when you're doing this is very low. I mean, you can you can acquire systems that can go do some serious damage with you know fairly low low cost, but the uh, the big disparity between the us companies and and what they're putting out again over at dji which still is probably 75 to 80% of the market is dji just because their products are so dang good you know and that uh, that technology is looking for looking for a place you know when you look at the numbers of dji products in the united states i suspect the general magnitude is probably 2 to 3 million platforms that are uh, that are in the us that are flying around if not if not more so it's kind of crazy where that's come from. And, you know, the U.S. is trying to catch up, but we have a big problem with uh, being able to compete at the price level that companies like DJI have. It's just difficult to be able to produce something that's that good for the for the prices. When you look at you compare a DJI product to a U.S. product and the U.S. products are getting pretty good. But the U.S. products are generally four times the cost as a, uh, um, a form model. So there's a, there's a pretty good price disparity.
0: In combat, uh, you know it's kind of well recognized that you know you're you're trying to increase cost, risk, and latency on your 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 opponent, and trying to decrease that on yourself. And it seems like on the UAS problem, it's it's quite turned around a, quite a bit. You know where the the risk is increasing on us because obviously the 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 threshold for success is different from a U.S. perspective. You know the cost is greater in terms of the solution. And 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 even the latency, the decision making time is 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 increased versus some of the asymmetric threats. So so one of the ways that we can maybe start to switch that is to really dive into what is behind a lot of these UAS systems. That's the artificial intelligence behind it, the technology that is just I mean, it's mind boggling to me. I, it's it, I'm not uh, someone who is technologically savvy in that way, so I just sit back and your presentation at in the webinar was just like what the capabilities that AI can can do today. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You mentioned at the beginning of your comments, you know, obviously back in the war in Iraq, you know, there was the remote controlled IEDs and you obviously had kind of that communication line between a device and someone who's controlling it. Now it's not just remote control, but it's actually a machine that's thinking on its own, collecting information, analyzing, and you're less controlling it and more just monitoring it or maybe setting it in a direction. So could you talk a little bit about where AI is today in terms of being used on these small UAS systems?
1: Yeah, you know, there's a, AI is one of those things that, you know, just gets thrown out all the time and, and uh, you know, in conversation. And th- there's a lot to it as far as the capabilities and, you know, how it's being used today. I think in the, the webinar I talked about, everybody thinks about AI. They think about the... Uh, you know, the, the, the futuristic droids that are on, on Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever it might be. And things like that, that are, they are doing that's, that's the, you know, that's the far, that's the, that's the, the kind of the, the eventual goal, <laughs> if you will, of this is to have something like that. That's, that's much smarter than a human that is able to, uh, to adapt to everything. And basically is, uh, you know, acts like a living being but we're not even close to that yet. I mean, we're back still on the machine learning side, basically, there's a lot going on in those areas for, uh, for being able to use that, that technology and get there. But we're really talking about machine learning. And when you back that even off one more, a lot of people get confused about the difference between you know f- doing something automated versus doing something with artificial intelligence.
0: Break that down a little bit, because I think that some of these distinctions are really important as we start to think about
1: how we need to address the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Programming an automated route is strictly, you know, putting GPS points in the aircraft and having it follow those those points to a certain place um and then do whatever you want. You know, there's been programs out there for uh, for years and uh and autopilots that have the capability to do this i mean they're literally under 100 bucks you can buy one and program your own to do all sorts of stuff but you can program them to go do something and that's more of what we call an automated route it has a tasking in there you've put the tasking in there and it goes and does it it might calculate the best way to do it the orientation to be able to fit in this flight plan it might do a little bit of that but that's really again, it's still just coding. It's not any of the uh, it's not any of the machine learning side of it, where you're taking the time to actually teach the program. But you know, keep in mind though that this stuff, it's all still it all still starts as code. It's not like you all of a sudden you have the Terminator out there who's doing everything on its own. The coding of it is, is still what what's driving it. So when you start getting into artificial intelligence now, though, now you're you're able to start allowing it to make decisions without you being in the loop. So, for example, if you had, and this this might exist in some aircraft out there, but your general prosumer type of, uh, type of drones aren't going to have that, but they might have the capability to go out and just make decisions, okay? There's like obstacle avoidances built into the drone, and it's going to fly around it. That's automated, right? It sees something, it knows how far away it is, it's programmed to stay this far away, and it's going to use this route to get around it. It's a total another story if you're saying, hey, I want you to go to point A to point B, and I want you to go take pictures of this, and it figures out how to do all that itself, and it goes and does it and makes decisions on its own. You know, those are two very different things. So, the automated route compared to artificial intelligence are, are very different. So... Anyway, the point being though that you know you have these training models, and I think we brought up the test down there they did in uh, in, in Las Vegas with the pilot in the simulator and the uh, AI flying another aircraft. There you go, out dogfights. and that's that's a you know, that's a great that great point. So they what they've done is they they took the model that they've come up with to to fly against another aircraft to do a dogfight. And what they did with that then is they taught it how to do it. So in other words, they took in literally like it would be you and I going and going to fly, you know, 10,000 flights in this same scenario. They basically took the different things that could happen and taught it and had it fly and see what worked and what didn't. So it's building up this database inside of the, uh, the artificial intelligence that's able to now, you know, it has a look back. And it, if if this happens, then this happens. And now you you think about it's going through trillions of computations, more than that, a second, in order to figure out what that is. And it's and it goes back through all those because oh this didn't work this oh this didn't work this didn't work this kind of worked oh this one worked in this scenario. And now it's going to apply that. And so the ability to take something that might not have any experience in something and then have a training model, which is critical that it's accurate training, but you have a training model that you can infuse there. And now. It's been there and it's done that, you know, several million times when it would take us forever to be able to learn how to do that. So anyway, that's kind of a convoluted uh, discussion about that. But yeah, the difference between automated and actual uh, AI and and where that goes. And then eventually we get into the point where you're talking about the ability to give something a mission. I mean, just you need to go do this. This is what you're trying to do. And it figures out how to go and do that whole thing and make decisions basically on its own.
0: And then, and, and then, at what point, you know, I, I oftentimes when we talk AI and in, in military capabilities, at some point we we have the ethics conversation in terms of decision making ability and the, the that man in the loop, man on the loop, or or however you want to word it. When you're talking about the capabilities of AI, I, and, and I have one of your slides up on my computer, and you kind of break it down between. Mach- artificial narrow intelligence artificial general intelligence and then artificial superintelligence and the last being more of the machine consciousness like at what point how how does the how does the 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 ability for us to influence from a human perspective kind of those that decision making process to make sure that the execution of any task is is ethical uh, adheres to a mission
1: and all the other kind of qualities we need to reduce risk yeah that's a that's a that's a big question there's lots of lots of uh, thoughts in this area you know again it's one of those where some people want to ignore this stuff and and uh and and move on to something that they can tackle but this is the future and you know that it, it's something that we have to i'll never forget when uh, i think i was down in uh, yuma at a, in a close air support conference with the, the marine corps and it was just at the introduction of a GPS-guided weapons. And I remember the discussion was that, oh, we're not going to ever use these things in a close air support role. And then a, uh, a general came in and said, guys, you can ignore this as much as you want. This is the future. This is happening. You guys need to figure out how to do it. You know, and that kind of an attitude is kind of what we need to have with artificial intelligence. It's here. It's going to happen. And other people are going to be using it against us. Because they might not have, you know, if you are if you are uh, basically the uh, the inferior force technologically and by numbers and everything else, uh, you really don't care about any collateral damage that might occur because it's one probably not going to be your side, um, but number two, you know, the the, the risk cost is uh, uh, is so different. So. My point being that when we start getting into to AI and the ability to give something a mission, and I think what you're talking about is the the lethal authority. So at what point in time does something have the ethical and moral and even legal side of making a decision that it can use lethal force? You know, we have lots of problems with that and we see problems with that in combat all the time where um you know what is self defense when can you defend yourself when can you when can you fire when can't you what do you have to have as far as the uh, enemy identification and that it's you know lack of friendly and all these type of things that we've gone through so now you're talking about something with ai being able to make a decision on the use of lethal force and uh you know that's one that It's easy to say, well, we're going to push that down the road, but it's in, it's here now. And our adversaries are going to be using that against us. So we have to figure it out so that, that, you know, we have, we have, uh, you know, something that we can live with, I guess, on the, the bottom line, because you think about, you think about you, you send something out with, you might have a, you know, there's a lot of conversation now and, and, and it's out there now, you know, I, you can see, I think Australia's doing um, some of this where you have an aircraft that might have a drone with it, a fairly capable drone, that drone might have, it might have some air to ground ordnance on it. And the aircraft is now, now telling the drone what to hit. Well, that's great, but now we get into the next level where something maybe gets shot at an aircraft at what point in time can this make its own decision to go take something out? And what has to be in place to do that? So you start thinking about that and about what our minds do when we are gonna go employ ordinance, making sure it's the enemy, making sure there's no collateral damage, making sure it's legal from, you know, some other points of view, you know, how that goes. All those things now has to go on into, that, into that AI. And it's gonna be interesting. You know, I think there's a lot of that, as we see with cars now, you know, some of the automated features that cars have, they're making, there's there's literally decisions going on, you know, with the, the automated cars running into this or that. And it's just so much more complex when you start talking about lethal force.
0: Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BA Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BA Systems Fast Labs, Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems' research and development and production organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background?
2: Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision making support. And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter.
0: This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crows Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field?
2: In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA systems, electronic systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world.
0: This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you?
2: Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work classification levels, but in FAST Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash FastLabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here
0: on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Yeah, I, I noticed that, you know, Pretty much with the increase in attacks from the Houthi rebels, a lot of the articles coming out of there in terms of U.S. strikes, a lot of those comments will be preceded with self-defense strikes, self-defense strikes. And that terminology is being used a lot more frequently to kind of set that standard of here's how we can, here's the threshold by which we can reliably respond. And I think that that a lot of that type of conversation is going to start to flow into how we you program systems and stuff to, to 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 learn from that and say here here's the threshold here's the self defense threshold okay now you can respond it'll be interesting to see how that continues to
1: evolve. Well, you know, and, and kind of bring this around full circle um, when you start thinking about countermeasures and you start thinking about um, whether it's it's uh, some sort of electronic attack whether you're talking about you know comms or you're talking about um, influence or high high power micros whatever it might be the ability now to to jam spoof whatever you want to call it against some sort of ai thing so now putting out signals that it might interpret the wrong way you know that becomes a big part of the game and that's where you know talking to a, a lot of you know with the questions that we got out of the uh, the webinar that's an area that's very interesting obviously the uh, old crows you know and everything and 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 current crows how is that gonna be done? And what kind of tools are we gonna have? Because now you have, say it, it, it is electronically identifying something, there might be a size, there might be emissions, there might be a signature of you know, the infrared signature, there might've been prior Intel, all these things are going in there. Well, now what happens when you start spoofing something that's coming out there, spoofing signals or something like that, it can be a complete game changer because now there's not the human mind in the middle of that going, that doesn't make sense. That aircraft cannot do, you know, five thousand miles an hour. You know, so that part of it gets really interesting too. So the countermeasure part of this, I think, is 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 really really interesting.
0: You kind of established you you that that segue perfectly because I did want to kind of talk a little bit about the electronic warfare aspect of all this. Obviously, with AOC, that's our mission. You know, your background is as a fighter pilot, U.S. Air Force. Obviously, you're you're well very familiar with how. Traditionally, EW has been used in an air-to-air or air superiority concept. Could you talk a little bit about, from a UAS perspective, now that you're in the classroom and you're, you're teaching the UAS technology, how has that changed the EW picture or what we can do with EW using UAS systems?
1: Well, you know, it doesn't take a rocket to, scientist to take a look at it and realize that your free space path loss when you get up right next to something is, is almost negligible. You know, and I think I had it on one of my slides where I was just comparing, you know, kind of a, you know, if you're standing off 100 kilometers, which is, pretty, you know, kind of a, you know, standard area for a standoff to be the amount of power required compared to, you know, if you're 100 meters away. And that is uh, a, a really uh, interesting because, you know, you can sit there and say, well, yeah, but we could shoot down something that came in here. Oh, yeah, what if there's 800 of them? You know, what if there's eight hundred of these one thousand dollar things that comes in? You know, you think about too. You know, around around ships or something like that with all the emissions and all that. Now you, you know, it. Yeah, sure, you can you can defeat one or two. Um, but you know, now when you talk about swarms and everything getting in there, it, it's a total different story.
0: And and you're seeing the the use of more use of uh, one way drones or you know, I guess the, the kamikaze uh, effect where it's it's not meant to come back. So you put that into a swarm. You only need to be successful one time if you're the adversary. You need to be successful, you know, hundred, a thousand times
1: if you're the U.S. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, the ability to use these for different roles, too, because now, you know, just like you think about different aircraft we might pair together to go to a mission, now you have the same small UAS that can do multiple missions too. You can have a jamming package you put on one of them. And, you know, these, you think about a jamming package, you know, we think about, you know, uh, pods and big things like that. It could be something extremely simple that can go, uh, that can go on these again because the power requirements aren't very high. So, you now have multi-role small UAS that can be involved in this, too. So you have some going out to do imagery. Maybe you have some to go out to create a 3D model. You have some going out to do some jamming in that area, and you have some that might have some projectiles or something else on it. The ability to mix and match those for what you're going against, you know, is pretty, it, it can be can be pretty interesting. You know, and then you get into the, what I consider kind of the real cool stuff, which is, The ability to airdrop this kind of stuff into different places. So now, you know, you think about force projection, you know, the ability for us to get in somewhere and use some of this technology the other way. So the defense of this, you know, there's there's a lot of defensive systems out there. And this has been an area that there's there's uh, I call it the uh, the glossy brochure area. There's a lot of companies out there that have come up with cool, you know, cool, glossy brochures on how it works. And then there's some that have come up with some really, you know, absolutely proven systems that are out there that are in use today. But as usual, you know, on the military defense side, we tend to completely overcomplicate everything, right? And we make the, you know, we make the $10 million thing to take out the $1,000 thing. So that there is a lot of that going on. There are a lot of defensive systems. Is what I'm saying, and we are, you know, now with these these new threats, it takes that you know that poke in the chest for the U.S. to get going sometimes in these areas. But there are there are a lot of defenses. I don't want to make it sound like there aren't defenses for this stuff. There is a ton of things in the industry is just ramping up big time. All sorts of different capabilities.
0: What are some of the most exciting technologies you see, just generally in terms of defensive technology? Is it more on the we talk a lot in, in, in at AOC here. You know the HPM front or laser technology, or is it more in the still in the radio frequency, or is it more fi- in the form of fires? What what is some of the technology that you think is like, this is this could be game changing if we ever are able to field it?
1: Well, right, and and I mean there there are systems out there that are fielded, and and a lot of them, quite a few of them. The uh the different systems are again. We try to overcomplicate this. We try to make one system that does absolutely everything. Right? I mean, that's kind of the, the standard. Probably run into all the time. You know, like we've seen with aircraft over the years and everything else. We try to uh, to make you know uh, we have it comes out as a specific uh, specific role, but we end up adding everything to them. Well, the same kind of thing for this is that the to take out a small consumer drone it isn't that hard. Taking out something that is hardened with on the military side or something is more difficult, so you're going to have systems that have different capabilities against these, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head you know these aircraft they use GNSS, okay so they're using you know they're using uh, you know GPS and and multiple foreign systems you know now you'll you'll start one of these aircraft up. It used to be you had you know six GPS satellites well now you have you know what did we have the other day we were flying a an albatross, which is applied aer- aeronautics, interesting test. We were flying uh, right away rules, big fixed wing drone against a helicopter. We we're doing live flights with this, it was pretty interesting. Um, but anyway, that came up. Typically, we had thirty two satellites with it, so we're not just to be able to say GPS. Well, it's not GPS anymore. It's uh, it's the whole other countries. It's Russia's Glonass. It's uh, Beidou. It's all these different uh, these different systems that are out there now, and these drones are using all those. So it's not just we're just not jamming GPS. But my point being here that there is the capability to jam those, and those typically, you know, are extremely low um, uh, uh, powered powered systems. So the ability to jam that's great, but now we've got the point where a lot of these autopilots are able to navigate uh, via acceleration. So they're still able to get a pretty good idea where they're going based on the acceleration, just like the old inertial navigation units that, that we've had in the military forever. It's measuring acceleration. So now you're having that capability. So does it actually need to have GPS? Or GNSS or not, most of them still do of the uh, the smaller stuff. So there's capability to take that out. Anytime you do that, though, what are you taking out of your own? So you think about if if you're getting attacked with a swarm, you have to put something out fairly high energy to take care of all these uh, to, to get rid of all these aircraft. If you're talking about a single or a few, you have a lane now you can do things on. So there's different. There's got to be different levels of that uh, of that defense. You know, I could talk about it anything. The high-powered microwave is is that's my favorite. I did a bunch of work on that about boy twenty years ago, with the the research labs out there, and uh, very interesting capabilities with that. And that has the, the capability to get, to not just disrupt the signals that are coming off, but actually disrupt you know what's really going on inside the uh, inside the electronics of the aircraft. So there, are all those all those things we've talked about. Those are all different capabilities. Then you talk about. GPS spoofing, GNS spoofing might be something to do that, do in there. There's just all sorts of defensive uh, uh, possibilities. And of course you have, in the end game, my my favorite um, is the shotgun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So now you've been, how how long have you been at Embry-Riddle University? I've
1: been full-time, full-time faculty for about 10 years now.
0: 10 years. So, I mean, I think most of our listeners will probably have an idea of what Embry-Riddle University, Aeronautical University is and its role, a global leader in ed, kind of, you know, education in, in this field. To, to kind of wrap up our conversation, I want to talk a little bit about the manpower side, the training side. One of the initiatives in the AOC that we are focusing on is helping establish a talent pipeline in electromagnetic spectrum operations. And obviously, when we talk about small UAS systems and our, our, the technology that we're putting out there to, to defend against it, or to or to uh, have superiority in that area, we need the talented people behind that coming from through the services, through private education, through places like Embry Riddle University. As a professor there, could you talk a little bit about maybe the, the the growing challenge or the continuing challenge of making sure that we have that talent pipeline? so that we have the
1: people in the right places making the decisions on this technology yeah that's a great question you know these uh my wife always reminds me of this whenever i get get uh, a little uh, peeved about some of the decisions that are that are being made and she always reminds me that universities are businesses it's no different you know the university is a business and if something isn't going to bring in more students in that then it's not gonna it's you're not gonna do it so uh, my point with that is that a lot of times there are things that you and I might think are absolutely critical that needs to be done. We need to have training and and education in these areas. Um, but universities, you know, again, just as a whole are going to look at and go, yeah, how many students is that going to bring in? You know, is that really something that we want to go down that? Is it really time for that? You know, what's the timing? So that's a that's a question there. A conversation I have all the time is about timing. And, and when do we increase the capabilities as far as UAS? And it's, it's really interesting because as, you know, we're pretty much the, the biggest, the oldest uh, university out there that's dedicated aerospace. But trying to get people to understand that UAS and autonomous systems, whether it's, uh, you know, cargo planes, whether it's, you know, you know, SpaceX, totally, you know, autonomous launches and everything going on. That is the future of aviation. And, you know, as flyers, you know, and aviators, we sit here and go, I really don't like that and that's fine, but it, it's the future and we have to accept that. So a lot of my conversations and my point here is a lot of my conversations that I have is about that point. We are not going to be doing flight training. So we do a lot of flight training, you know, at Embry-Riddle down at our Prescott campus in Daytona Beach. We have Cessnas and, and DA42s down there where we do all over the flight training. Matter of fact, I think somebody once said about a quarter of the uh, uh, the pilots out there in the U.S. Have, have a degree or have spent some time at Embry-Riddle. So anyway... At what point in time do we start changing that and getting into the UAS side? And it, it's slow to change. But anyway, um, you know, getting back to to uh, your, your kind of your question is where where is that? Again, there's kind of an issue with the university. A lot of times we'll go and uh, you'll get somebody who has a degree in coding, uh, software engineering, whatever it might be. They might not know much about artificial intelligence, coding, and all that. And that has to be you know that that's follow-on training wherever they wherever they go. So, kind of the problem we have, and and you know Microsoft and Intel have both kind of run into this is that the universities aren't producing coders and and people as, as fast as as they need them. So they've come up with their own academies. They have their own places where they train people for what they want. And uh, you know that's kind of the landscape that we have right now is the need for that is so high. And a lot of the universities just aren't producing it. Now, having said that, you know we have degrees in UAS uh, engineering and technology. You know we we have all of our degrees are focused somehow on aerospace, and so we have a lot of these a lot of these degrees. We have we have them you know in a lot of the intelligence side of things and and uh, and applied that way. So we have a lot of these things, but there's there is a big gap. Between where this is going and what, you know, universities are actually uh, actually putting out and a really interesting thing that's happening right now, just as far as the flight and the use of UAS in general, not talking about, you know, way up high tech uh, tech, but it is the community college side. So we're partners with several community colleges across the U.S. and they are really, you know, uh, teaching the user uh, capabilities of this stuff to uh, to a lot of their students. So anyway, the workforce development side, but a lot of that as far as the flight part of that is going on in the community colleges. But then that AI and that, a lot of that, um, you know, there's a few universities out there that do quite a bit of that, but it's just it's just not enough. And that's where, again, that's where everything's going. So that's, where, that's what we need to get to.
0: Yeah, you hit on the, the key point. And the idea is, is the demand from a people side there strong enough for a university to really invest in this? Do you think as a professor at a university, we are doing enough, you know, in secondary education, elementary, high school on up, to prepare students for what the universities need in this area in terms of experience with coding and an understanding of the sciences, STEM uh, aspects of EMS and so, so forth, so that they can even make a decision? I went to college, I went to grad school, you're always a little bit behind the curve in terms of what you're really aware of what you need for your own self. So you're, you're trying to make decisions in college. You don't know what the world is like. So how? Can, what can we do? What, what can the universities do in partnership maybe with the government or however, to kind of push that down a little bit more into the
1: educational area, the, the secondary education. You're starting to jump in a topic that would probably be good for another another podcast. But, but <laughs> well, I'm uh, you sure know, it will be, but I'd
0: I te- <laughs> tease it with you a little bit here. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. But, you know, I think you, you asked, are we preparing for uh, students for this, you know, the middle school, high school area? And the answer is absolutely not. I mean, absolutely not. I'm involved quite a bit with uh, local schools around here, and frankly, you know, we have the ability to go into a school and do a dual enrollment where I can go in and I can teach a class, a, a 100, 200 level class to the students, and they're actually getting college credit for it. Schools aren't interested in that. They're trying to survive right now is is basically what I'm seeing. And the the interesting things that could be thrown in there just aren't anymore. You know, matter of fact, just general state of of the education today in the public schools, We have, where I live, um, probably about 50% uh, of the students go on to college because the other ones have learned, you know, things in the trades that they're doing. Unfortunately, our high school had a great uh, auto shop, uh, a great metal shop and wood shop and all that's closed now because of, uh, for several reasons, but basically don't have the budget um, to operate it and the liabilities and things like that are too high. So we've taken a lot of things out of the schools and I don't think we're teaching the things that are, you know, are the future. Um, so what really makes it frustrating is when you talk to the students, they are really excited about, you talk to them about, Hey, this capability, AI to do this, blah, blah, blah. They are extremely excited, but trying to get that back into the front end of the education system is difficult. And it's state by state. Don't get me wrong. There are some states that are doing a very good job at this kind of stuff. Personally, where I'm at, it's not good. So we need to do a lot more in those areas in order to, uh, to excite students about it and get them uh, interested in some of these things, because, again, that technology is, it's going to be everywhere. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, 40 years ago when computers first started being, uh, in the schools, you know, there was a lot of people that pushed back and says, why in the world do we need to have a computer in the school? <laughs> you know, and now you just kind of, you know, you kind of laugh at it. It's kind of a, you know, a little bit of a, a Monday night uh, quarterback in there, but still, I mean, it's, this, it's the same thing with this technology with AI With all this, it's the future, and we need to embrace that. And it needs to be taught in uh, all the different places at all the different levels. Because you know we're we're getting behind the world right now as far as our education and what we're doing with our students, and uh, we're going to continue to fall behind if we don't uh, make some changes here.
0: Well, I think that is an excellent observation and charge for for our community as as we move forward in this area. And so, with that, I you know I want to thank you. For taking time to join me here on from the crow's nest, uh, this is a great conversation. I, I, it's one of those topics that we could probably continue on, and I, I'll spare you because I know it's it's just daybreak out where you're at, and uh, but we could keep going because everything touches on this in some way. So there there's no there's no limit to the tangential issue uh, to talk about but I appreciate you taking
1: the the time this morning to uh, join me here on from the crow's Nest. yeah absolutely Ken this is like you said these are great conversations and they're the conversations that that, that need to happen and unfortunately they're not happening in a lot of places so it's great that you're bringing this out to uh, to uh, the old crows and everything this is uh this is some 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 conversations that uh, a lot of people need to hear
0: Well, hopefully we'll continue to have those conversations here on on, on the podcast. It's a a great forum to kind of start to peel back some of those layers on that. So I really appreciate your support. You bet. Anytime, Ken. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Dr. David Thurdeacre, for joining me. Again, if you're an AOC member, look for an email with more information on how to join the recording of our next bonus subscription episode next week. Uh, If you're not an AOC member, you can still access that episode when it is released on Wednesday. Also, please take a moment to review, share, and follow our show. Uh, We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Thanks for listening.